This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of June 9th, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 134 of Defender Radio. We're celebrating beavers this week and asking you to become a beaver believer. We're happy to bring you two great beaver stories. First up is Simon Jones of the Scottish Wildlife Trust. Simon joined us from across the pond to talk about the reintroduction of Eurasian beavers to an area of Scotland after a 300-year absence. We'll also be talking with Sarah Koningsberg, who is producing and crowdsourcing a film about beavers and their role in ecosystems and climate change. The film is aptly titled Beaver Believers. Before we get started, I wanted to update you on our Great Ontario Beaver Tour. Defender Radio News In the last week of May, APFA's Adrian Nelson traveled to Ontario and together, the two of us headed north. Way north. All the way past North Bay, in fact, to work with municipalities dealing with beaver conflicts. In a West Nipissing community, we built two flow devices that will protect a beaver family in the area. Further northwest from there, we met with landowners, municipal workers, elected officials, and other stakeholders to show them how coexistence is possible within their communities. Our trip back down to southern Ontario included a few stops with similar meetings. In all, we met with dozens of people and drove over 3,000 kilometers in four and a half days, all for the beavers. You can find videos, photos, blogs, and how you can get involved at FurBearDefenders.com. Defender Radio News Over 300 years ago, beavers disappeared from Scotland. The once native species was wiped out by hunting and trapping, and many Scottish communities aren't even aware that the national emblem of Canada was once prevalent in their own country. But now a pilot project has begun to reintroduce the Eurasian beaver. Simon Jones of the Scottish Wildlife Trust is one of the many people helping in the reintroduction project and recently joined us to discuss this initiative. Tell me a bit about what happened to beavers in Scotland, like from a historical perspective, where did they all go? Okay, well, uh, like many places, certainly in Europe, beavers were hunted to extinction here, uh, we believe about 300, 400 years ago. Uh, last real good evidence of beavers come from fur trading records in the Loch Ness area in the 16th century, uh, where we know furs, beaver furs have been traded with the low countries in Europe for hat-making purposes, uh, you know, and it was really, in some ways, the extinction of the animal in Europe led to the, you know, the movement in North America to go on exploit the resource over there because there's so little of it left across in Europe but we believe that probably the northern parts of uh, certainly Britain certainly Scotland had some of the last populations of beavers but they were they were pretty much gone as a, a you know a widespread species by the Middle Ages in most of Britain uh, there are a few places where the evidence suggests they might have lingered but we've got there certainly weren't anything in any big numbers, so gone for a good 300, 400 years, which from a cultural perspective is obviously quite a long time uh, for, in terms of you know, way beyond people's you know, generations of people to be able to remember them. Uh, although there is some evidence in, uh, in the Gaelic-speaking parts of West Scotland, there are 
still, you know, a Gallic name for beaver and some, some place names, etc. So maybe it existed in some point in historic memory, but pretty much for every, the vast majority of population have been gone for years. And it's a, it's a great surprise to many people that beavers were ever native here in the first place. Well, and I guess that leads to the obvious next question of why was it decided to try reintroducing them? Uh, well, I think it's been done in many places in, in Europe already over the past 30 or 40 years. And uh, I think it maybe in some respect it started with the, the idea is, is it possible to restore a native species? Uh, but increasingly the rationale behind beaver induction here is about what beavers do. It's about the fact that, you know, we it's the potential for a wetland ecosystem restoration project, and this is an animal that does it, you know, as an ecosystem engineer, keystone species, etc. So I, um, I'd say, you know, you go back long enough, probably in Scotland, we'll probably go back 15, 20 years when the first discussions really started in terms of can we have... Uh, could we consider bringing the beaver back to Scotland? And for a long time, this was, you know, this was madness even talking about this. Uh, uh, but as more countries have done it in Europe and populations have grown, and people have learned to live with beavers again, you know, where it'll be, I'm sure, very common <laughs> for you and for, you know, everybody through Canada and parts of the States as to what it's like to live with beaver populations. There's a lot of misinterpretation and factoids hear about what beavers will do, you know, many people think that beavers eat fish and uh, all sorts of bizarre stuff. So, you know, a long, long time scale of trying to address some of the simple questions about beavers, but accepting that, you know, there are going to be challenges living this animal again, you know, will require management on occasion, and therefore we've got to be prepared to intervene if long term the beaver population lives alongside a human population in, in Scotland again, let alone in more built parts of the UK, further south down in England, etc. So uh, it's been quite a big journey here, really. And the Scottish Beaver Trial has has been the first ever formal reintroduction of the mammal anywhere in the UK. I mean, it's really been quite a big deal in conservation terms. It's uh, a lot of public attention has been focused on it. But also, in some ways, it is a it is a good illustration of the I wouldn't call it conflict, but you know, land use and land ownership is changing markedly here in, in the UK and in Scotland in terms of rural areas. You know, as farming stock levels decline in the north and west of of Britain, who owns the land and what happens to that land has become quite a politically charged subject. So the idea of bringing in a species as well that's capable of changing landscapes is pretty much guaranteed to draw an opinion either way from like we're involved in that, you know. So it's as much about what the whole thing represents as to what it really means on the ground as well. Well, and the project I understand has been on the go for five years now, I think. Um, what kind of results have you been seeing? Uh, well, the, the project here is a, is a sort of a seven-year process of which a year was all about introduction and getting things lined up and local community consultation and a five-year sort of field monitoring trial where the animals are out the ground and you look at how they're doing and their effects. 
And then within, we've just finished that five years. So basically last week was the end of that five years. And then over the next 12 months, all the data and analysis will be looked at and boiled down and all the reports will be written and condensed into a final report, which will be given to the Scottish Government in May next year. Uh, and that's been done independently, that reporting by the government agency, which is called Scottish Natural Heritage. Uh, so there's, you know, it's, there's a, a big uh, sort of set of factors and the fact that it needs to be seen, it needs to be an independent, independent scientific process. So, you know, it's judged on its evidence and its facts. But that being said, you know, people's opinions and perceptions are probably just as important, if not, not more important to political decision makers at the end of the day. So we will actually won't really find out the real on the ground results until from an independent point of view until next year. Uh, our view is as the sort of folks who've run the trial on the ground and the trial team is that, you know, we've brought a bunch of beavers along, Eurasian beavers. We've released them in the wild and they've pretty much done what we expect them to do. They have established, the, you know, we only have a license for four families of beavers, four territories have been established, three of the four groups have bred, produced quite a lot of kits. We've had quite a lot of losses as well and dispersal, uh, which is a bit of a surprise, but you know, and that's why it's a trial process, it's a learning process. So the animals have built lodges, they've built dams, they've felled trees. You know, they've harvested vegetation and have had an impact. So in many ways, they've done what you would expect beavers to do. Next year, we'll find out whether the science, in terms of anything particularly new, in terms of, you know, research on the ground. We've done some really interesting stuff about the use of sense and, and the use of camera trapping, etc. Uh, but uh, I don't think there's been any huge groundbreaking findings as such. Uh, and maybe we shouldn't be too surprised about that. But it's a process that we need to go through, you know, a legitimate process that follows all the IUCN guidelines on how you do a species reintroduction, because this is, you know, this is a big journey we're on here, and the Scottish Government have got to be presented with all the facts put on the tables, people's opinions and views, and then they can, you know, hand on heart and say, right, we've looked at as much stuff as we can here, and our opinion is this. Uh, whatever it will be, we understand the decision will probably be announced at some point at the, the end of, towards the end of 2015. Yeah, so we've probably still got another nearly 18 months left to go before we, we know where things really go on, on the ground. What does your organization hope to see? I mean, and I'm talking 10, 20, 50 years into the future with this project having really gotten going. Yeah, well, the, the, the partners to the, the Scottish Beaver Trial, certainly, which is the Scottish Wildlife Trust and the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, you know, are committed. We want to see the return of the Eurasian beaver to Scotland. We want to see widespread populations. And we want to see that because we believe it will be, uh, you know, uh, valuable for wetland ecosystem restoration in, in Scotland. It will, it will help be a more renaturalizing process, rewilding, if you want to call it in some way. So we, we would like to see that. You know, we hope the Scottish government uh, agrees that that is possible and that the Scottish people are willing to live with this animal again. And, you know, in, in the future, I would like to see further reintroduction projects in, 
in Scotland. Uh, we also we would like to see that we um, you know with healthy thriving beaver populations, albeit beaver populations that we will need to manage, uh, admittedly. Uh, but that is you know good enough good enough reason that you know we can return a once native species back here. It will have major impact from ecosystem and biodiversity benefits uh, and you know that's what our job is that's what we're about we we view beaver as a tool that would help help uh, help us be able to do that so you know that's strength to our arm that's what we're that's what we're hoping to do to learn more about the scottish beaver trial visit scottishbeavers.org.uk we'll be right back after these words from our sponsors you're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416-750-9453. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg-hold, conibear, and other body-gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at furbearerdefenders.com. Dot com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. This is Defender Radio. The world's climate is changing. No one can really argue that point anymore. But did you know beavers may play a role in our survival? Filmmaker and environmentalist Sarah Konigsberg has undertaken a project to document the roles beavers make in our ecosystems, titled beaver believers. Currently in post-production and fundraising via Kickstarter, Sarah took a break to tell us more about her project and why it matters. You've got a background in film, uh, primarily environmental type projects. How did you get involved in all of that? Okay, well, if we back up about 15 years, um, I actually came to Walla Walla for the first time to be a student at Whitman College. And I was an environmental studies and politics major. 
and very interested in the the way that people perceive and engage in the environmental issues. So both the science of the issues, but even more than that, what makes people care, what makes people not care, what makes people get involved, what leads to change on the ground versus what lets a problem just get totally tied up in argumentation and not uh, the Klamath Basin in Oregon, the big water crisis revolving around dams and the suckerfish was going on at that time. The arguments about whether or not to breach the four lower Snake River dams was going on at that time. The spotted owl controversy had just happened. Uh, and so my senior year, working on my thesis, wrapping everything up, and we started studying place-based collaboratives in the West, where basically disparate groups all had very strong opinions, didn't agree with each other, but something got so bad that they finally realized they had to come together and talk to each other. Maybe it was just that their hatred of the federal management agencies was so strong, they figured they had to get together and talk. But anyway, they would come together face-to-face -face and start listening to each other and actually engaging and hearing and sharing stories. And they would be able to come up with, with a lot of work and a lot of you know effort, but they would come up with strategies to actually make a decision and then move forward. Oftentimes it would be combining different groupings of knowledge, the scientific community's knowledge, the rancher's knowledge, the Native American's knowledge, but they would actually get something done. And so this notion of storytelling, bringing people together really captivated me. And kind of as an accident, just as one more filler class, I had taken a little history of cinema class that year. And something clicked and I realized documentary film. What better way to combine the science, the policy, but also these really human narratives of why we care about land and place and our natural resources and our way of life. And I just decided, all right, that's what I want to do. And I've been working towards it ever since. Outstanding. And I guess something that I find very curious is someone with this environmental background, um, you, you decide to look at beavers, and this is something – well, no, because a lot of people view beavers, even those in the scientific community, um, while there seems to be this one hemisphere that recognizes their importance as a keystone species, as nature's engineers, there's still a lot of people who think they're just a nuisance animal that needs to be managed. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you sort of get into looking at beavers as a project – as a whole, because this this film is not just about one little issue. It seems to me to be a very large uh, concept. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so again, let me back up a bit. Uh, there is a program out of Whitman College called Semester in the West. And my professor back at the time and my friend and colleague now, Phil Brick, he developed this program that first ran in 2002. And it is an entire semester of camping on public land, traveling the eight to 10 states of the West, learning about public land issues, water resources, land management, grazing, timber harvesting, water, Native American issues, energy issues. And the students start here in Walla Walla, Wallowa County in Oregon, and just sort of wiggle and flow their way all the way down, ending with work in the Colorado River Delta area down on the border. Um, so this program runs every other year and has since 2002. And I then uh, rejoined the program starting in 2008 to teach the students photography, 
and actually their final project is a podcast. Wow. <laughs> um, so I've been working with them for the last three programs, 8, 10, and 12, uh, and they interview people and audio record and video record all semester long and then put together podcasts that try to delve into, again, these issues. Um, so at the end of the 2012 program, Phil was collecting students' journals and sort of seeing what they thought of the whole semester. And one student, Issa Diaz, she had written, I just think it is amazing that the four most inspirational, powerful, successful women we met on this whole semester were all working in the same thing, beaver. And that clicked the light bulb for Phil. Whoa, that is a good point. That is a fabulous story. And thus the name, The Beaver Believers, and it was originally just going to be about these four women, uh, was born. And those four women were Mary O'Brien, who's a botanist with the Grand Canyon Trust, Suzanne Foudy, who's a hydrologist with the Wallowitz National Forest, Sherry Tippy, who is a live trapper in Denver, Colorado, and Valer Austin, who has land in both Arizona and Sonora, Mexico, who doesn't have beavers yet, but she's working building gabions and chinchettas and different water catchment devices that sort of mimic what beaver dams do, trying to bring the desert back to life. So that is where the story was born. And then Phil approached me saying, hey, would you like to collaborate on this project? He's, he had the idea. He knows the people. He has the background and the issues. And then I was the filmmaker. And we decided, okay, let's do this. So we started working on it last winter, applying for our first grants and starting to pull it forward. And what have you, what have you learned that surprised you? Because um, even someone who has uh, an extensive education like yourself, being on the ground talking with these people. Oh, it's you... been incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I would know this much about beavers. And frankly, I didn't know anything about them before we started this film. I thought it would just be this fun excuse to go on a road trip, meet some new people, talk about, oh, you know, watershed restoration, that's important. Um, I had no idea how much beaver would come to infiltrate every corner of my life. <laughs> it's it's really amazing because I guess what we say is our film is both about beaver, but it's also about you know the most fundamental thing we need in life, which is water, and kind of the biggest um, challenge we've ever faced as a human species, which is climate change and how rapidly the world as we know it is changing. You know, the very mechanisms by which our systems flow and function are changing. Um, yeah, it, I, I don't know what, what more detail do you want about the beavers than in that? Um, well, that, what I find interesting is every time like, – I, I did not know a lot about beavers before I started my job. My specialty mm -hmm. and interest has always been um, in mesopredators and carnivores. Uh, coyote, skunks, raccoons, uh, things like that are really what grabbed me originally. And I've learned way more than I ever thought would be possible uh, about beavers as well. Uh, we were actually just on a road trip to northern Ontario, which is a very rural part of the province. And uh, we installed some flow devices to protect beavers in one location, met with several mm -hmm. municipalities. And Every time we meet with someone, and our beaver expert, Adrian Nelson, starts talking about beavers, you can see people kind of light up as they learn that there is so much more to this animal than they ever thought possible. 
uh, I guess, what was the, the moment for you when it finally, like, I, again, you, you clearly have an understanding of the ecosystem and biodiversity. But when you really started to see the beavers in a different light, was there a light bulb moment? Absolutely. Uh, the first light bulb moment was when uh, talking with Suzanne Saudi, the hydrologist, and she relayed the story um, of her aha moment. Uh, and it's the story of the fact that beaver were in every watershed across the West. And I don't know as much about them in the East, but I imagine it's, it's similar. But in the West, you know, with the westward expansion and the fur trapping back in Hudson Bay Company times, previous to that, beaver had been in every single watershed, something like every half mile of stream that would have been a beaver dam. And the Hudson Bay Company recognized that beaver pelts were the currency in the West. And so the French were coming in, Hudson Bay Company, America, this big fight over land and who's going to get the Northwest Territory. They sent out their trappers. It was basically the first act of ecological warfare. They said, beaver pelts are the currency, exterminate them. We want you to completely eradicate this species to make that land worthless so that then we can get it. And there's trappers' journals where they're depicting that they're destroying those watersheds. Even at that time, they could see streams were starting to downcut, water was dropping underground, drying up. And they, they could just tell, we are destroying these ecosystems. So by the time, you know, settlers come in, by the time we have cameras, by the time we start doing scientific documentation, our entire conception of what does a healthy stream look like, I mean, it, it had so drastically changed, we don't even know what a healthy stream looks like. So when we're doing all of this restoration and we're making all of these assumptions about what are healthy ecosystems, what are ecosystems that have function, you know, forget aesthetic, but to have function, ecosystem function, we have altered it so drastically by removing beaver. We don't even know how many of our current problems are purely because of the loss of beaver. And so realizing it's not that we have some newfangled idea now, like, oh, well, let's drop in this critter and see what happens. It's basically like, oh my gosh, we have broken this system with our arrogance and our trapping. We have got to put that piece back for there to be any hope that these lands can get back into a circle of function that can sustain itself and not just continue to get drier and drier and have our streams downcut even further and, you know, all of our wetlands disappear. So learning that was huge. It just dropped my jaw. It was one of those moments of realizing that we as a species have done such damage in such ignorance that we don't even, we can't even fathom how huge it is. And that's what I really realized. Okay. Yes, it's about beaver. But it's so much more, it's the perfect example of this, this idea that we can't just come in and pick and choose. Oh, I want this piece, but I don't want that piece. Like, no, everything evolved for tens of thousands of years since the last ice age with all of these pieces in place. Our only hope is to put as many of those pieces back and try to let these lands function again the way they evolved with all of those intricate relationships. What do you expect people will be able to take away from this film? Um, 
I would imagine a lot of the people who are going to see it are going to be interested in the environment, in animal welfare, but you're also going to get a lot of people who just think it sounds interesting. Um, what is your sort of dream result of this film being out there? Our dream result would be that people realize they can get involved and they can make a difference when it comes to climate change at the global level and watershed restoration at the local level. Uh, one of our big um, know, ideas from the beginning was to put climate change in a different kind of narrative frame. It's not, oh my gosh, it's so big and huge, it's so scary, we can only be talking about a global carbon tax and you know CO2 emissions. It's bringing it to a level where people actually get inspired and excited to get involved and make a positive difference. And so that's where really the notion of thinking like a beaver is kind of our ending metaphor. If you think like a beaver, you're taking care of yourself. But in that very act of taking care of yourself, you're also trying to make the world better for everything else around you. You're being a positive presence in your community. You're giving back and you're helping other people and species out at the same time. And I think we're really seeing that with things like the resurgence in small farms, CSA, farmers markets, people getting in, interested in canning and knitting and building things and making things from scratch, this whole push towards local sustainable economies, you know, neighbors helping each other out. Um, we're seeing that bubbling up all over the place. So I think there is a desire. I think people are dissatisfied with this completely global, everything is electronic, everything plugs in, everything is the same and manufactured, who knows where. You know, I think people crave that authenticity and that connection and really want to revitalize these local networks that are really so much more enjoyable and so much more satisfying to be a part of than just being a consumer. It's being a producer. It's giving back. It's knowing that you matter within your little system. You're not just another number of some consumer who's just worth their money. So I think that's really what we hope for. People realize they can join the watershed council. They can go plant some trees along the creek with a school group. They can get involved with a school garden. You know, if there comes along a little beaver in their park downtown, they can jump in and say, no, you don't need to kill it. You can get a flow device and a beaver deceiver and we can leave it here and our kids can watch it and we can all learn. Shortly after this interview was recorded, Sarah, myself, and APFA's executive director, Leslie Fox, discussed the project and came to an agreement. APFA will be backing the film as a major sponsor. To learn more about this project and get involved yourself, visit thebeaverbelievers.com. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank our guests for sharing their time with us, as well as Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.